2: This is Uncanny USA.
3: He says, somebody's in the
2: house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
0: Hola, everyone. I'm Wilmer Valderrama.
4: And I'm Mr. Raquel. Welcome back to Essential Voices, Wilmer, you've been working on such fun projects recently. What is up with you?
0: I don't know. Have you you checked out Encanto yet?
4: Have I? I've watched it twice already. I've even told my little baby cousins to go see it, and everyone has been super excited about it.
0: Prove it. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So much fun being, uh, being a part of that movie, though. it was such an honor to be asked to be part of uh, of such a historic Disney film with uh, such family and heart. And, you know, it really shows our our Colombian culture in such a pure and beautiful light. And, And we've never had a moment like that in cinema. So it's a pretty incredible accomplishment and also a great invitation for so many people that haven't discovered the culture itself. And, you know, the relativity, right? Like how much we can really relate to this family. I think that's that's also really beautiful.
4: Mm, That's so amazing. I definitely felt that way about it as well. And I mean, the colors, the music. Yeah, I mean,
0: (laughs) absolutely. You know, when I took my mom to the premiere and, you know, there was a surprise performance by Carlos Vives and her brain just straight up melted, you know. And how about you, Amar? What's new with you?
4: Well, one thing that's been super nice and I know it sounds kind of cliche, but the weather here in the Bay has just been magical it's been raining and it's such a gift whenever it rains here i woke up one day and looked out my window and saw that there was fresh grass growing and it was so green in my neighbor's front lawn and i just got so excited about grass
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's rad though so uh what we got going this week
4: So this week we're focusing on disability advocacy and visibility specifically for children with special learning and communication needs. We spoke with essential worker, Rachel Barstow, who's the education director at the Children's Center for Communication, Beverly School for the Deaf in Beverly, Massachusetts. Rachel shared with us how crucial in-person work is for her students and how difficult this work became with COVID-19, but how through innovative technologies, strict COVID-19 protocols, and lots of love for their students, their center was able to support their children to thrive even during a pandemic.
0: After our conversation with Rachel, we'll have a roundtable discussion with Niall DeMarco, who is a model, producer, death advocate, and founder of the Nile DeMarco Foundation, a nonprofit organization that exists as a national philanthropic resource for all organizations, institutions, and individuals working to improve the lives of every deaf person in the world. And Nile is the first death winner of America's Next Top Model. You better work now. (laughs) Our second roundtable guest is Sean Ullman, Senior Director of National Initiatives from The Arc, a national organization that promotes and protects the human rights of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and actively supports their full inclusion and participation with the community throughout their
4: lifetimes. It's going to be a great show today.
0: Yes, it definitely will be. So let's do it up. Rachel's story starts right now.
3: My name is Rachel Barso. I go by she, her. I work at the Children's Center for Communication Beverly School for the Deaf in Beverly, Massachusetts, and I am the education director there. So it's my responsibility to manage the academic programs of the school and the supervision of teaching and support faculty.
0: What makes you passionate about your work and maybe just share a specific memory or a moment uh in which you said, you know, this is my life, this is my calling.
3: Sure. So I think that That question is kind of twofold. When I first got into the field of special education, it was working individually with the students. We're very fortunate in this field often to work in very small classroom sizes. Because the needs of the students are so unique and individualized, you really need to be able to provide that one-on-one support in the field of severe special needs. So it was working with the students and seeing those moments of growth. In special education, those moments sometimes aren't as frequent as you might see in public education, but they're there. Our students have the ability to acquire communication and knowledge. And when they have those moments, when you see students communicating for the first time, walking for the first time, it is so absolutely rewarding. So that was the initial driver coming into this field. The second, as I grew within the field and became an education director, it was the support of the teachers. I love working with my teachers and helping them in the classroom, seeing them grow as educators. That's very rewarding as well. It's such a collaborative field, particularly in our school, where on any child's team you have up to 15 professionals working for them there is always something to learn every day I learn something new and it's very rewarding to be able to go every day work with such unique individuals work with such talented educators and therapists and know that we're making a difference in some way.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about your students
3: our school specializes in meeting the academic and therapeutic needs of children who are ages three through 22. Our students are deaf, hard of hearing, or hearing, and they have unique developmental and/or communication challenges.
0: In that same coin, what are some of the misconceptions about special education?
3: I think the biggest one that comes to mind is that individuals with disabilities aren't able to acquire information. And that's just false. The reason why special education exists is so that you can create a learning environment that best meets the needs of the students. They may not be able to learn in a public school classroom with 22 children in the classroom, but they have the right and the ability to learn information. They just need the accommodations and modifications that allow them to acquire that
0: information. So when the pandemic happens and having these challenges presented to you, how were you all able to pivot? What were some of the solutions that you had to uh, create?
3: The field of special education is 100% hands-on. It requires the physical support of our students, modeling how to complete tasks and language, as well as supporting and navigating their environment. So the pandemic required special educators to take a hands-on field and make it 100% virtual. And so if you ask a special educator about the past year, I believe 99% would probably say it was the hardest school year they've ever experienced. And I would also say that parents of students with special needs felt the same way. And so to go back a little to kind of highlight how challenging it was for our students and many students who have special needs. So Most of our students do not communicate the way in which you or I do. They are not verbal communicators. Half of the students in our program use American Sign Language. And so those are the students in our Beverly School for the Deaf program in our Children's Center for Communication program. Most of our students have limited verbal output or no verbal output, and they communicate using what's called augmentative and alternative communication or AAC. So AAC includes all the ways that we share ideas and feelings without talking. So you use AAC when you use facial expressions or gestures instead of talking. And through, throughout the day, there's so many times in which we communicate without talking. Some children and adults with severe language deficits or speech deficits need more advanced AAC. So Some may use it all the time. Others may use it just to clarify their message. And these systems are very high tech. And so the AAC systems our students use consists of a tablet. So you think of an iPad or a computer like device that displays buttons. So they have the buttons all on the screen. There might be four buttons. There might be up to 20 buttons, 30 buttons. It all depends upon their cognitive ability, their vision, their processing speed. So when they select a button, it will speak for them. And some students are able to isolate their finger and press a button. Others don't have functional use of their hands. So their systems are set up to a head switch. So the device will scan their message. And when they hear what they want to say, they hit a head switch and the message is spoken out loud for them. Others don't have the head control for it, so they use eye gaze. So they stare at this computer screen, and when they see the button that they want to say, they stare at it for about three seconds, and it speaks the message out loud to them. When you think about that level of communication need for a student, plus physical therapy, plus occupational therapy, and when our students are getting devices and using them, we're modeling a lot for them. To take that and make it remote was the hardest challenge we've ever faced, and it was done. I commend my teachers so much for what they did. We provided technology to students who needed it. We delivered switches and equipment for those in need, but it's a learning curve to use that technology and that equipment, and so we had to provide that to our parents. Our parents became our teaching assistants, our therapy assistants, supporting their children while we supported them via Zoom.
0: What do you think is one of the biggest challenges special education currently faces at this moment?
3: The biggest crisis right now is a staffing crisis. Just as across the country, there's a staffing crisis in the fields of education. Many people left after the pandemic last year. Many people did not want to return, and so now there's a mass staffing shortage in special education schools, and most of our schools are operating at a 30% employee deficit, and because of that, some programs have needed to close due to staffing. There are schools that are residential programs for students with significant special needs or behavioral challenges. Many of those have had to close. Many of our students have severe health needs. And in order to attend school, which they have a right to do, they require a nurse and there's a nursing shortage. So they're not able to attend school if they don't have a nurse.
0: Are you aware of some of the reasons and why a lot of your colleagues and employees didn't come back?
3: After last year, many people reevaluated priorities and perhaps that was a shift in what they were planning to do with their careers. Right now, as an educator, it is very difficult to watch the debates unfold um, on a national level about masking in schools, vaccinations, etc. And the real fights that are unfolding between parents and school boards about how to keep everybody safe. And that's what it is about an educator. At the end of the day, you just want to come and you want to do your job and you want to keep everybody safe. And it's a lot for people to take. And I think that is one of the reasons people left the field. They're scared or the mental toll or that they needed to care for their families.
0: And now we enter this Delta variant spreading, right? How are you keeping kids and staff safe at school and what are these conversations like?
3: So in October of 2020 was when we opened our doors back up full time to our students. And that's when we were told, you know, the most vulnerable population needs to be serviced in person. You know, no disagreement of that. What we needed to figure out was how we were going to keep everybody safe, how we were going to keep our staff and students safe. Six feet of distancing does not exist in this field. You need to be working side by side with our students. CDC said we needed to use gowns, gloves, face shields. We had to acquire all of that. At the end of the school year, we spent over $200,000 in COVID expenses. Coming into this year, We learned a lot from last year. We were still wearing masks this summer. So starting this school year with masks is not something that was new to us. Many of our students are not able to wear masks. So all of our staff are wearing them. We're going to continue with testing our staff on a regular basis. There's some more financial support with that as well. We are kind of keeping our school as a fortress because it is our responsibility to keep our staff and students safe. It's a great responsibility and it falls heavily on the shoulders of our staff. They think about it on a daily basis about keeping our students safe, who are so vulnerable, who are easy to get sick and the trust that the parents place on us to keep their students safe. So um, it does not get lost on us the need to maintain those health and safety protocols in the school. So we will continue with what we did, you know, when we opened up last year.
0: What can the community do to support the work you are doing? How can we all be more of service to you?
3: I wish and my hope for my students is that the community is more understanding of their abilities and their contribution to the community that the community becomes more accessible for them. I wish that there were more programs available to them once they leave our program at 22, welcoming them into the work environment. And I also hope that the community recognizes the work that special educators do and educators as a whole, and there's more value placed on that profession.
0: I wonder what messages you want to leave for future special education teachers and staff as well as if you were to give yourself an advice before you went into this pandemic you know what would that be
3: So I had a great mentor who used to say this is personal work that you can't take personally <laughs>
0: That's good. That's very good.
3: (laughs) It's very hard. And my advice to my educators is to always ask for help, always have those conversations and take it day by day. You know, we're educators, but we're learning from our students. We're learning from each other and you can't take it personally. And it's so hard not to, especially after last year, but for the pandemic, I wish I had just told everybody to breathe, to take a breath, to focus on themselves, to care about each other. And in education, we hear a lot, what do you need? And we hear, I know I need something, but I don't know what I need. So observing and supporting as you go along and just continue to be the collaborative environment that we are.
0: Rachel, you are awesome. Very, very proud that we were able to have this conversation.
3: Thank
0: you. Speaking with Rachel taught me so much, especially when she talked about the way that technology is being adapted for children with special needs. I mean, the fact that kids can communicate using technology that promotes augmentative and alternative communication, or AAC, is so incredible.
4: It really is. I mean, I'm still thinking about the eye gaze technology that Rachel mentioned. The world of how we communicate, it's getting bigger every day when we open up the boundaries and possibilities of what communication looks, sounds, and and feels like.
0: Well, that's a beautiful way to think about it, mr. It makes me think about speaking Spanglish or how with people who you know really well, you know, they can tell what you're feeling just by how you look at them or by reading your body language. So it's amazing, it's amazing that AAC technology is translating these nonverbal ways of communicating for children. When we get back from the break, we'll have a roundtable conversation with advocate and model Niall DeMarco and Sean Ullman from The Arc.
4: And we're doing something a little different on Essential Voices this week. I'll be talking with Niall and Sean by myself today in our roundtable conversation coming right up.
5: I love sharing positive tips with my listeners on everything from health challenges to relationship troubles. Because life happens, baby, but you got this. Hi there. and stories. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you listen to podcasts.
6: This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is.
4: We're really thrilled to have you both here for this conversation. And we're familiar with the work that you're both doing and are just blown away by the advocacy and visibility you bring for folks with disabilities. And to dive right into the conversation, I'd love to know what your reactions are to Rachel's story. And Niall, let's start with you.
2: Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, In reading this story, I was obviously very touched Certainly for those folks out there who are working to better the next generation of students and who are out there, teaching in a pandemic, which is really scary. Every single one of them uh, in the school system is working so incredibly hard. And I don't think we really could ever thank them enough. But I do think in reading her story that so many people miss that language deprivation is a very real epidemic that impacts the deaf community, specifically children, And so we have to focus extra hard on kids with disabilities in general, but specifically deaf kids who don't have access to that sort of environmental learning at home. And oftentimes we spend so much time working to build accommodations that in a situation like this, we don't realize how heavy of an impact it's really going to have. It's essentially a double whammy. Now, more than 75 percent of deaf kids out there have hearing parents who don't sign with them at home. And so it's so incredibly clear to us that we have to work harder to make sure the kids are getting an adequate foundation and language that they need in order for them to be ready to succeed during school. But when school is their only language access and that's taken away and they can't communicate at home, I mean, it's isolating and it's horrifying. I mean, it takes a toll on your emotions, your mental health, but as well as your physical well-being often, the feeling of isolation, and so. It really was just even more clear for me of how much the school system really needs to be working, essentially, to a place where students are able to find their own identity and are able to foster a sense of community in a place like the world that we're living in now. We really need that, right? Myself, coming from an all-Deaf family, I felt incredibly normal and felt like I could do anything. But for so many of those Deaf kids who were stuck at home with hearing parents who didn't sign, I mean... It's such a, an incredibly tough answer, and I I don't think that there is a perfect solution to it, and I don't think anyone has the right answer. But I think right now it's, you know, stories like these that really need to be contributing to the larger conversation.
4: Mm, thank you so much, Niall. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there from what you're saying and what you're talking about in ensuring that students with disabilities are fully supported in community and encouraged to learn in ways that are fully set up for thriving is essential. And so with the pandemic, this thriving has been in part set back and also in other ways bolstered as we heard from Rachel in regards to all the amazing AAC technology being used for learning at her center and their center's commitment to making learning possible during even the height of the pandemic. It's definitely a precarious situation because students across all age ranges encountered certain deficiencies from online learning due to the pandemic. Though for other students, online learning was also super liberating. It's definitely not a one size fits all situation, and especially for deaf kids, like you're saying, or for students with disabilities who may require additional learning assistance that was not possible during the pandemic. And I'm really glad we're having this conversation today all here together about some of the work that needs to be done in educational spaces. And for you, Sean, what were some of your initial thoughts after spending time with Rachel's story? Well, first of all, thank you also for having me, and I agree with everything Niall said.
8: And I think Rachel really hit the nail on the head. A lot of the things she talked about aren't exclusive challenges to deaf and hard of hearing students. They were challenges for all students with disabilities. The language component is obviously Incredibly important and especially unique to deaf and hard and hearing students. But so much of special education services and supports are hands on and happen sort of in real time and require flexibility and a need to sort of adjust on the spot to whatever the student is or isn't picking up and being able to see that in person. You know, with the pandemic. A lot of schools weren't requiring students to have their videos on. So how could teachers even know whether the student was in the room, no less whether they were actually understanding what the teachers were trying to teach. And that was for all students, a particular challenge for students with disabilities. So I think a lot of the issues that Rachel raised were, were really spot on for all students with disabilities.
4: Thank you. Yeah, what you're saying is so true. I mean, how would teachers even know if their students were in the room if their cameras were off? You know, I was fortunate to be working remotely on interview and recording projects. Uh, really fortunate during the pandemic and um, recall situations where colleagues and I had the privilege of having, you know, what we call Zoom fatigue, or I actually like to call it the Zoom tomb. <laughs> um, and at times I didn't want to have my video on. But thinking back, the times that I had my camera off, I was definitely less engaged and maybe I was multitasking because for me, I know that I absorb a lot from facial cues, from eyes, even through a screen, especially if I can't physically be in the same room as the folks I'm I'm in conversation with. So for students with disabilities who are nonverbal and or communicate via AAC, as Rachel described, being in the classroom is essential, or if not in the classroom, at least with video on and support present at home. But not every kid has this luxury. And so Niall, I'm wondering if any of this contributed to you starting your foundation, the Niall DeMarco Foundation, or what, what did inspire you to start your foundation?
2: Absolutely. Um, so advocacy has always been a really huge part Of my upbringing, but I certainly wouldn't have called myself, you know, so much of an advocate as much as a community member who very much believes in uh, cultivating our sense of community and our culture. But a lot of that had to do with growing up in essentially a utopia. You know, I grew up in an all-deaf family, but I did go to a deaf school in New York City that had hearing teachers and hearing administrators and a superintendent. And seeing that sort of experience, my mother wanted to work against the school system to improve the state of education for deaf kids. And she met with the superintendent, and with the school board, and she said, listen, you have to empower deaf people to not only become educators, but to lead the curriculum here. And again, she was turned down. Again, she was turned down. And again, she was turned down until finally she decided we're going to move to literally the other side of the country, to Texas, for a better education, and that really instilled something in me. She planted a seed that I think brought me to reap the benefits of having an identity and, and certainly being able to stand up for what I I knew and believed was right. It led me to a place like America's Next Top Model and dancing with stars and now producing, where I do have the platform essentially to share what my mother had instilled in me and really try to change and shake up the foundation of what our community is currently facing. But to me, honestly, it all started with my mother.
5: Wow,
4: that's so amazing to hear about your mom and that she inspired you. is It's really moving. Um, are you open to sharing a little bit more about your mom?
2: Yeah, absolutely. My mom is... Uh, <laughs> my mom. I mean... <laughs> Amazing? I don't know. Can I just say amazing? She raised three boys as a, as a single mom and I think just did such an incredible job. She was teaching ASL classes to the NYPD when we were kids for years, essentially, to improve the experience of deaf people with basic traffic stops and parking infractions. And my mother really taught so many people more than just ASL, but taught them the basics of our culture and and our community while also maintaining three boys at home. I mean, she's, I don't know. I could talk about her forever. She's my whole world.
4: All of us here at Essential Voices are super close with our moms, too. So this is just beautiful to hear. It's beyond inspiring that she wanted to make sure that you were safe should you ever encounter yourself at the hands of police brutality, which, as we all know, escalates to violence or death all too often in situations that shouldn't have even happened in the first place. She really sounds like an incredible mom. And turning it over to you, Sean, and your work with The Arc, how did you first get involved with The Arc? Well, I think it's very unfair to make me follow up that story.
8: So, the ARC, to provide a little more background, is a national organization with chapters throughout the country that advocates on behalf of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And I am one of the few staff persons at our national organization who didn't come to the mission with a personal or family connection. I always wanted to have a job working with children when I was younger. And after law school or during law school, I took part in a clinic where I was able to advocate on behalf of a student with a disability and that forayed into a career. So I spent 15 years representing students with disabilities and their families and seeking the special education services and supports that they needed. And that brought me to the ARC about six years ago to support our chapters who offer that kind of education and support to students with intellectual and development disabilities and their families.
4: Wow, that's awesome that due to your work as an attorney, you wound up representing students with disabilities. And then it sounds like doing so became a passion for you and you've stuck with it. The ARC sounds like an amazing place. And I'd love to know more about some of the specific programs and initiatives that the ARC offers. Oh, gosh, we have so many. Uh, sort of following up on what Nell said about criminal justice, um, individuals with
8: intellectual and developmental disabilities also frequently have encounters with law enforcement that don't go well. Um, many people may remember the individual with autism in Florida whose uh, dedicated support worker was actually killed because they didn't understand that the individual was having a bad day and he just needed his staff person to be able to calm him down. And, you know, I'm aware of, you know, deaf individuals who have found themselves being at the bad end of a gun because the officer didn't realize they couldn't hear them. So we have a program called the National Center on Criminal Justice and Disability, which seeks to educate law enforcement professionals, including public defenders, prosecutors, police officers, crime services, victims, judges, um, and then, of course, people in their families about how to ensure the criminal justice system is more fair and more accessible to people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So that's a program we have that's really great. One of the programs I lead is called the Center for Future Planning. And we provide education, create resources, do trainings, to educate people and their families and professionals about the need to ensure services and supports are available over a person's lifetime, including after their parent or primary caregiver is no longer available, which is a very big challenge for people with intellectual development disabilities who are living with older caregivers. And a lot of them are, the estimates are around more than a million people with IDD live with a caregiver over the age of 65 and don't have any idea what they're going to do, where they're going to live, what their services are going to look like when their parent is no longer available. So those are a couple of our programs I'm really excited about, though we have many, many more.
0: We'll be right back after this break.
6: I often get asked why I'm such a big fan of wrestling, and it's all thanks to my grandma. Sharing memories and revisiting wrestling's greatest moments. And with State Farm's support of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, I get to do just that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite Michael Tura shows wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: There are some things that are too good to keep a secret, like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip.
0: Welcome back to Essential Voices.
7: Thank you for sharing a bit about
4: all these incredible programs, Sean. The program that you lead, the Center for Future Planning, ensuring that lifelong support is available is super critical and shows how invested the arc is to supporting folks at all stages of life. And turning it over to you, Niall, what programs does the Niall DeMarco Foundation have to support deaf children and their families?
2: Absolutely. One of my passions has always been working to uh, support the end of language deprivation. And out of that, we have the opportunity to partner and work very closely with an organization called LEAD-K, which is language equality acquisition and development for deaf kids. We've worked together to write legislation that's been passed at a state level that ensures that all children who are born deaf or experience deafness or hard of hearing have a foundation language by the age of five. And we do that by establishing benchmarks in the ages of zero to five. And I believe we've passed it so far in, I want to say 18 States, which is really fantastic, but it is still very much slow moving. We're getting there. We'd like to see it passed on a national level sooner than later, but Once that's passed, really across the U.S., we want to see what that looks like for deaf kids. We want to see them uh, supported in every possible way and ensuring essentially that they have a foundation in language before that critical language acquisition window in the mind closes. We've seen without it that not only are there speech delays, but also um, social delays. There's also brain damage that we've seen occur through various studies that have been done. And so every year, the kids who are lucky to be under this legislation are tested and are checked to see which one they're doing better in, whether that's American Sign Language, English, and we develop a timeline essentially for early intervention or deaf mentorship, which is fantastic. Our trained deaf mentors are able to take a look at the child's development and see how they're acquiring language and also develop new structures and systems to provide them even more support. So- Very much about accountability, but also very much about being able to, as Sean mentioned, sort of work in the moment right, and make those decisions, essentially, so that we can provide them everything that they need to be ready and learn and grow by the age of five, if that answers your question.
4: Wow, Niall, that's totally amazing. And the work that you're doing circles back to this word that you used earlier that I keep thinking about, utopia, and how you feel like you had the blessing of growing up in a utopia, but how so many other kids don't get to have that experience, especially when it comes to the language component that you're mentioning now. It's definitely not the same at all, but it kind of reminds me of why I feel so blessed to have learned Spanish at home from my mom, because having the language access makes me feel super connected to my Latin or Latinx community and allows me to work more closely with folks from my community who are monolingual Spanish speakers, which goes back to Rachel talking with us about AAC communication and broadening the ways in which we think about communication at large. And so the work that you do with your foundation, Nile, and the work that you're doing with the ARC, Sean, are actively working to create this utopia for all kids who have disabilities. And it's really beautiful to hear about today. Thank you so much. And for both of you working every day in these fields, do you notice any misconceptions that the general public has about working within special education or within disability advocacy? Sure. Well, I actually think that Rachel
8: covered the biggest one in her story, which was that students with disabilities aren't as capable as students without disabilities. And again, the fact is that Almost all people with disabilities, including people with very significant medical disabilities, physical disabilities, intellectual disabilities, hearing and vision disabilities, are able to accomplish the same things that all people can accomplish as long as they're receiving the services and supports they need. Whether that's language access, whether that's nursing care, whether that's speech or occupational physical therapy whether it's you know extra time on a test or access to an interpreter. So I think that is by far the biggest one. I think a second one that I would add in the education space specifically is that the services and supports that students with disabilities somehow distracts from or interferes with the education of students without disabilities. And while there can be students with challenges that are so significant that being in their regular education classroom isn't really the right fit for them because they can't get their needs met and maybe they are too distracting, that's very rare and much less common than people might think. And it's sort of like the uh, curb cut effect, which now everybody loves, right? Because you can easily get your kid's stroller down the sidewalk, or if you're pushing a cart from the grocery store, you can easily get up the curb and cross the street. It's the same thing with the services and supports that students with disabilities get in school. A lot of the services and supports that they get, the way that information is taught just slightly differently, maybe a little more concretely, maybe a little more hands-on, or with a little extra focus on a particular area or a little extra time actually benefits all of the students in the classroom. So I think that's another common misconception about special education services and students with
4: disabilities that I w- would want people to know. Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts on this, Sean. Niall, do you have anything you'd like to add?
2: I do think it's a little bit of a, a tricky question, certainly surrounding special education, Every year, I feel like we get a new bill that supports, you know, a more integrated classroom, right, into a public school. And, I mean, I think the obvious perspective is to assume, absolutely, right, leveling the playing field is what we see. And personally, I think it's a great idea. But at the same time, for my own community, I know that working in a different language requires a different learning style or is indicative of a different learning style often, And we're seeing deaf schools shut down across the United States, which is putting a lot of these students into mainstream programs. And I don't know that that's the best answer. And I don't know that it's the most conducive environment for a deaf student to be able to thrive and sort of garner that sense of community. I am a big proponent of schools essentially with mainstream programs creating programs specific for deaf kids that give them a chance to sort of experience a little bit of the utopia that I had. But having a student working with an interpreter as an accommodation in a standard classroom, I do think does rob them to some extent of the larger experience. But I do think as a general um, community of disabled people as a whole, absolutely. We definitely want to see more integration in a classroom and we want to see, as Sean said, that sort of universally designed curriculum that does benefit all students in that setting.
4: Thanks so much, Niall. And your last comment about making accommodations universally accessible, I think, teases out this thread of representation and visibility in the media that ties into making accessibility a possibility across a variety of fields and platforms, not just in education like we're here talking about today. Given that we're producing media with a show and that Wilmer works in the entertainment industry, we often talk about what representation means and looks like for communities that have been minoritized or marginalized. And since you're in the industry, Niall, as well, and you were involved with Netflix's show Deaf You, I'd love to know what your goals were regarding representation and visibility while working on this project.
2: Wow. So, I mean, it really goes back to my own experience in the modeling industry, and then working on Dancing with the Stars. After that, I had booked auditions and meetings with writers and meetings with directors, which was fantastic. And it was always the topic about the role that really left some questions sort of unanswered. What I found was that writers and actors and directors would say, you know, we would love to write you in. This is, you know, this is great. We'd like to see you lead in this, or uh, this could be a really good fit. But the yes and no was that they didn't really know how to write me in and finding a deaf writer was not an easy task. Mm -hmm. That was when I started to realize, of course, these are people who want to work with me and want more exposure, but it's currently not available. You know, I went to the world's only deaf university in Gallaudet in Washington, D.C. It was a fantastic experience and I knew how many talented people were there from all over the world. And to me, it just made perfect sense. You know, people go from deaf families and from hearing families and from countries that don't have a formal sign language. People who have no experience of, of deaf culture or community. And when I had the opportunity to work on you, I realized that this was the best place to do it. Like I mentioned before, there is in fact no one right way to be deaf, but this was also a really great Way to spark ideas in Hollywood and to show the varied layers and the diversity that we carry in, in our community. So I'd say that was probably the biggest goal.
4: Where would you hope that deaf representation and visibility in the media will be in five years? Or maybe another way to ask this is what kinds of projects excite you that you want to be working on?
2: Well, with Deaf You, we had a really rare opportunity, which was to create a place for not only cast but crew to work on a project that would be so groundbreaking. Oftentimes there's no deaf writers in the room, there's no deaf cameramen, and we completely changed the game. I'm so incredibly grateful to Netflix for really believing in the idea and really believing in empowering deaf creators. We were able to set up an actual ratio and work with People in the community, both in front of and behind the camera. What I'd like to really see in five years is to see those people writing the films that I'm seeing, creating and producing and telling the stories, but also having their own projects. We'll be right back after this break.
5: I love sharing positive tips with my listeners on everything from health challenges to relationship troubles. Because life happens, baby, but you got this. Hi there. I'm Honey German, and I know we can all use some positive energy these days. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you listen to podcasts.
6: This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is.
7: Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Essential Voices.
4: Thank you so much. And I can't wait to continue seeing the projects that you're involved with. And to bring us back to our essential voice this week, Rachel, and to the pandemic, which was a big portion of her conversation with us, she explained how many extra hurdles the pandemic put in place in order to get her students what they needed to learn and to thrive during this time. And so for you, Sean, with The Arc, can you give some insight as to how the pandemic affected the community of folks that The Arc supports and how the pandemic affected the work that you were doing? Sure. I will say that there are certainly some students, both with and without
8: disabilities, who actually thrived during the pandemic. The fewer distractions from the classroom, the lack of social pressures that can sometimes make the learning environment actually harder for some students, particularly students with anxiety or uh, mental health or other behavioral challenges, may have found learning at home with extra support from family actually better than going to school and being in the classroom. But I think that the needs and the challenges that Rachel described were much more common. And I think that most students with disabilities really struggled with learning during the pandemic. And things like accessing their services and supports, you know, occupational and physical therapists tended to have to train parents to provide the services that they used to train. And not all children had a parent or an adult at home who could do that. So some students just went completely without any services at all. I think that, I think you mentioned this previously. So kids with disabilities tend to be behind academically their peers without disabilities sort of pre-COVID. So we don't know for sure, but there appears to be some good evidence that they've now fallen even farther behind their typically developed peers. And I think one of the main challenges for this school year and likely for many years to come is figuring out how to make up for that last time for students with disabilities so they don't find themselves at a disadvantage sort of in the longer term of their lives.
4: For you, Niall, you mentioned attending both a public school and a deaf school growing up what programs and support should be established at public schools to set deaf students up for success? And as a follow-up to this, were there common threads that you observed in how remote learning and the pandemic impacted deaf students in particular?
2: So I do think that public schools certainly running a deaf program is always a benefit to a deaf student. But I think what is so important is that it's run by deaf people. You see hearing people oftentimes really with no cultural Um, competency, and really no knowledge of our community leading these deaf programs. And what we need to see is more role models that are providing feedback for these students and allowing them to express themselves in radically creative ways. Um, You know, what we'd like to see is more deaf people empowered to be educators and change makers in schools, I think. But as well, public schools should be teaching ASL as a foreign language, like Spanish or French or German, Certainly, if you have deaf kids attending your school, it would make sense and seem obvious that you would have that in your school so that students could communicate with their peers. I think those are probably the two biggest things that always stick out to me. But I do think it's somewhat obvious. You know, deaf kids hate online learning, especially I mean, I don't think anyone is really passionate about online learning, but certainly in a mainstream program, it makes it even harder For me and my family, working with masks is really tough. Um, I actually asked my brother just recently, who is an educator um, at a deaf school, I asked him about the mask and he said, it is so, so tough because so much of American sign language is on the face and creating this barrier to essentially half of our language is, it's more of a guessing game than anything. And I think like everyone else, we're just looking forward to a safe end to this pandemic.
4: Sean, can you explain how Biden's infrastructure plan, the Build Back Better plan, will support folks with disabilities? Um, With a disclaimer that uh, I'm not on our policy team, so this is not my
8: area of expertise, but I am certainly aware of the work that we're doing Um, in the education space, the Build Back Better Act Act. Doesn't have a lot of funding for education. And one of the reasons for that is because so much funding was dedicated to education during the COVID relief bills. And states are still figuring out how to spend that money in the best way for their particular communities. There is funding in the bill for teacher training. So that's really important. There's a real shortage of special education teachers. And if states are able to use that money to train more teachers that will be um, particularly special education. It's for all teachers, but if they're use, able to use you know, some of it to train special education teachers, that could go a long way in addressing the special education teacher shortage. And then there are also funds in there for inclusive childcare and preschool programs to ensure that children with disabilities have an opportunity to participate in child care and preschool settings with students without disabilities to the extent they want to and are able to. So those are two important things that we're advocating for around education, but some of the more, um, the bigger and more challenging opportunities that we're advocating for are around services and supports for adults with disabilities. And the two, there's a lot of things, but the two main things are for additional funding for what are called home and community-based services. And those are services that are funded through the federal Medicaid program and almost all individuals who receive sort of long-term, lifelong supports, whether it's during the day, at a job, in their home, That's funded through home and community-based services and Medicaid. And there is an incredible shortage of services across the country. There are an estimated 800,000 people on the waiting list to receive those services. So right now they're getting certainly not what they're eligible for and a lot of people, nothing at all. And then there's also a huge, um, like the crisis with nurses that Rachel mentioned and the crisis with special educators I just mentioned, there's also a crisis with direct support professionals. And thinking about the hands-on supports that students might need in school, a lot of those supports continue into their adult years. And again, if they're able to access those services, they tend to be through Medicaid. And the people who provide those services are called direct support workers or direct support professionals. And the pay is quite low. It's not the most glamorous of jobs and the pandemic made it even harder to recruit people to do that work because it is impossible to do at six feet. And so there's a real need to improve the pay, increase incentives to hire, to train individuals, and then also to make more services available to get people off the waiting list. And so those are uh, that's one big thing. And then the other is paid family leave, um, which is also included currently in the bill. And, you know, a lot of caregivers of both children and adults with disabilities often find themselves needing to leave the workforce if their loved one has a serious medical crisis or, you know, loses their day or employment services and is at home and can't be at home alone. But also other things like, you know, not being able to take a promotion, not being able to move for a job, having to cut back hours, going to part time where they lose some of their benefits. So having a paid family leave plan is really important for caregivers of people with disabilities to be able to remain in the workforce while caring for a person with disabilities. So those are the two biggest things that
4: we're advocating for in the legislation. How can the community support the work that you're both doing? And Sean, let's start with you and the work that The Arc does. Well, I would
8: echo what Rachel said in her response to this question, which is it would go a really long way to support people with disabilities if uh, the community, other parents, other students, were a little more understanding of disabilities and a little more accepting of disabilities and differences. And also just if there were more programs and supports available for people with disabilities. But sort of specifically on actions that people could take right now, you know, contact your congressperson to tell them to support the provisions in the Build Back Better Act. That will make sure that people with disabilities have access to the services and supports they need. The arc has a program called the Disability Advocacy Network that you can join and get alerts from us to stay on top of the sort of important policy issues that are frequently coming up for people with disabilities so people can sign up there. And then I guess specific to education, States and school districts received a lot, I mean, a historical record amount of money from the federal government to help with COVID relief. And each state had to submit a plan that was approved by the federal government on how they were going to spend those funds. And families who want to know what their states are supposed to be doing can find that information available on, you know, the State Department of Education's website and, you know, make them do what they said they're going to do and make sure they're including students with disabilities in their
4: efforts. Thank you. Those are all really great suggestions. And Niall, what about you? How can the community support the work that you and the Niall DeMarco Foundation do?
2: You know, of course, we need more allies in every corner. But again, just to repeat, it's so important, instead of taking the megaphone, to amplify the voices of people from the community, right? Certainly, um, contributing money is fantastic to organizations like Lead K and Man Foundation, it's certainly not cheap, but like what Sean mentioned, this is state level legislation and those states have representatives that you can contact, but also following us on social media and following creators on social media and organizations like Lead K that are putting pressure on these states, right? Those numbers do support the change in, in bills. It was, I want to say three or four years ago uh, in Texas that we didn't have enough people showing up on the day of the decision and the bill failed. This is something that as American people, we do have to put pressure on, but it does take time. So join us.
4: Mm, Such beautiful conversations today all around. Don't you think, Wilmer?
0: Absolutely. I love now thinking behind that view. And how it was important to him the deaf folks, you know, tell their own stories, both in front and behind the cameras. And it also reminded me of our conversation with Carmen Carrera and how much we benefit when more people are in the room.
4: Yeah, me too. Also, as someone who's super close with my mom, I adored when Niall shared about his superhero of a mom who taught ASL to local law enforcement officials when he was growing up. Talk about being a fierce advocate, working on making her community a more tolerant, just and compassionate place.
0: I know we're all mama's kids over here. You know, I love my mom more than anything. It also was so cool to hear that Sean was doing similar work over at ARC. I'm so honored to have spoken with Rachel and that you had the opportunity to speak with Niall and Sean. For more on Niall, follow him at Niall DeMarco and check out Death U on Netflix. Also visit the ARC's website at thearc.org to see how you can support their initiatives.
4: Essential Voices with Wilmer Valderrama is produced by me, M.R. Raquel, Alison Shaino, and Kevin Rutkowski, with production support from associate producer Lillian Holman, executive producers Wilmer Valderrama, Adam Reynolds, Leo Clem, and Aaron Hilliard. This episode was edited by M.R. Raquel and Sean Tracy and features original music by Will Rosati. Special thanks to this week's Essential Voice, Rachel Barstow, And to our thought leaders, Niall DeMarco and Sean Ullman from The Arc, additional thanks to Gray Van Pelt, Sammy Hausman, Megan Trevino, and Kristen Wright. This is a Clamor and WV Entertainment production in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
6: Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
0: There are a lot of things that matter to me. Family, community, culture, and peace of mind. Hi, it's Wilmer Valderrama, and when balancing life, I have to say nothing brings more comfort than having support. And when it comes to ensuring those things that matter to you the most, State Farm offers the support with an agent available in person or on the phone to discuss your coverage options. Support when you need it, however you choose. That's State Farm's way. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: From BBC
4: Radio 4, Britain's
2: biggest paranormal podcast
4: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God.